When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to this week's Intelligence Squared podcast with me, Farah Jassat. And me, Daniel Ben-Koren. This week we had an event on the revolt against the rich. Daniel produced the event. Daniel, what happened? So this week we have Anand Giridharadas. He has a new book out called Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. And it's about how global elites have the appearance of trying to make things better for the world, but actually have very little interest in changing a system which benefits them. And of course, Anand himself has an interesting background. He's now editor at large at Time magazine, but used to work at McKinsey. Yeah, so he's very familiar with this whole world that he's exploring of ultra-rich kind of professionals, bankers, management consultants, philanthropists, who all have a stake in the current unfair status quo while attempting to appear to be doing something to change it. So he was in conversation with Anne McElvoy of The Economist, and we hope you enjoy listening to this week's episode. Hello and welcome to this Intelligence Squared event. Tonight, the revolt against the rich. Glitzy gatherings from Davos to Aspen and spin-offs all across the world, former heads of state, Silicon Valley bosses and Hollywood A-listers champion philanthropy as the way to solve the world's most pressing problems. But scrutiny over how this money is spent and how much influence it has is growing. How effective is the do-gooding of the Davos class? And might their dollars be better used elsewhere, perhaps in paying more taxes while they're getting so rich. My guest today argues that the top 1% of earners have little real interest in social change when the status quo has served them so very well. Anand Giridharadas is a McKinsey man gone rogue, now tearing down his former idols in a best-selling book, Winners Take All, The Elite Charade of Changing the World. He says he hopes it will encourage a few enlightened philanthropists to become traitors to their class, and the rest of us to stop handing over our future to an elite, one supposedly world-changing initiative at a time. In his day job, Anand is editor-at-large for Time magazine and political analyst for MSNBC. Welcome, Anand. So you're a graduate of both Oxford and Harvard. You've done very well in life. You're very successful at what you do. As a younger man, you are awarded a Henry Crown Fellowship at the prestigious Aspen Institute. Doesn't get much posher in US terms. Are you impressed by what you see? And you meet this group that you're going to come to call Market World in full fig. What's it like? It was a fascinating thing. You know, I, I am and have been for 14 years a full-time writer. And I got this invitation to join what I call kind of a benevolent, open secret society, the Aspen Institute, that had a very specific purpose. And the purpose was to solve the biggest problems in the world. Pretty ambitious purpose. This is how Americans talk. Um, and, and, and the idea was specifically that the biggest problems in the world somehow now, the theory behind this was the biggest problems in the world now 
are no longer solvable by government. They're no longer solvable through traditional actors. The biggest problems in the world can now only be solved by entrepreneurial business leaders. That's the theory. And so this fellowship arose. And Davos is a similar thing. There's many variants of this. And the theory was you take young business leaders, CEO types, entrepreneurs, and you get them in this fellowship. They meet four times over two years for a week each. They read some deep books, Plato, Aristotle. They also read Jack Welsh, which should have been a clue. Um, <laughs> and, and they talk about their lives. We actually talk about our relationships. It's very deep. And you push each other to not just be the person you're being, but, but to take on some of these big issues. And as you might imagine, 20 business people in a room is essentially a sleeping pill. Um, so in every class of 20 people, they would always add two or three non-business people, just so people wouldn't fall asleep. Um, and this could be artists, activists, philosophers, different people. Um, so I was you know, the Indian spice of my particular <laughs> class. But as I got into that broader Aspen Institute world, they're having the Aspen Ideas Festival, sponsored by Pepsi and Monsanto. We're having deliberations about the future of democracy in the Coke Seminar Building, named after the, the brothers, not the beverage. Um, and it started to occur to me, and I'm ashamed, frankly, that it took more than three minutes. It started to occur to me that all these people who I was in this fellowship with, the business people that I was not, were actually part of the institutions in many cases that were causing the problems we were then meeting in Aspen to try to solve. And as beautiful as, as Aspen is, at some point it occurred to me that it may be more efficient because business people love efficiency to just not cause the problems <laughs> and then not have to go to Aspen to solve them. But Aspen is very beautiful. And so there was this peculiar ritual in this fellowship where they asked us to sit on panels with each other. They didn't actually invite that many outside speakers. The idea was learn from each other. So one time they made the mistake of trying to learn from me and they asked me to give a talk. And this irritation, which I wasn't alone in, there were some of us backbenchers in this thing, a lot of the other journalists and artists and weirdos that they probably shouldn't have let in, were complaining, griping for years. And finally, I was asked to give this talk and I pretended to give a talk about a book I'd written. I did not do that. And I surprised That old trick. Um, it's a great trick. And, and I su surprised them by essentially raising the question in, in concerned and loving terms about what happens when you have a room full of people who think, and these are millionaires in the room, billionaires in the room, what happens in a room full of people who think they are changing the world, but they may be the thing actually preventing change? So let's talk about what that looks like in practice. Now, Aspen hasn't let me in, so I, I can't uh, trade stories with that one, but Davos... I can. The good thing about being a journalist is you get to go all, the, all these uh, either high-end or disreputable, depending which way you look at it, places. And what I see is a bit of what you describe. I see a, a, a lot of kind of showmanship, changing the world, philanthropy as a means to an end for corporate purposes. But I do meet in the middle of the night, people don't really have to sort of stay up and talk about what they want to do, about girls' education and Africa or about alleviating poverty or curing malaria. I do see very engaged people and they could just spend their money and sit on the yacht and take the fourth holiday of the year. So if you would, if I can take you up that magic mountain uh, to Davos, what do you think is kind of wrong with the kind of solutions that they're proposing as well as the oddity of them perhaps turning up to alleviate the problems which you could say are so in deeply ingrained in capitalism that we're kind of all in it anyway? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I have a feeling, I, I have never taken a survey, but I have a feeling that girls in Africa are tired of being empowered by men in Davos. Um, <laughs> um, I think girls in Africa, like, have this figured out. Um, you know, I, I called this January while Davos was going on. I, I called for it to be, well, right before it went on, I called for it to be canceled. Uh, that did not happen. Um, I called for then this to be the last we're not sure that that's going to happen. It probably won't, as you can imagine. And the reason I did was, I mean, I think your question is the perfect question about Davos. Is this merely, I mean, I think nobody maybe, not many people would, would agree it's a bit of a spectacle. It's not doing maybe as much good as they pretend. But is it problematic or is it just yeah. kind of an irritating sideshow? That's an interesting question. And I think probably the default assumption we have is it's an irritating sideshow. They're going there to perform and 
They're not really necessarily doing the things they say they do. There are many sincere people there also. Let's not, you know, a, a lot of good human rights people and, and whatever go there because they have raised money from the plutocrats. But I actually started to think that these things are actively problematic. And let me, let me explain why. Um, if you have, if you are a very, very wealthy person who benefits from some of the policies I talked about earlier, austerity, low taxes, deregulation, um, not having competition enforcement, so you have one company for shopping, one company for search, one company for this and that. Um, if you benefit from those policies, and you know there's a lot of public pressure out there in a lot of places to actually reverse those policies, question those policies, right? If you, as a rich person, just sit in your velvet robe in your English country house or your house in Greenwich, Connecticut, right, and just go on Twitter and make videos while smoking a cigar and drinking brandy mm -hmm. about how you really think taxes should be kept low, I don't think your opinion is going to help you, right? I think that's actually going to backfire. I think people would raise your taxes as soon as they saw that video. So I think what it becomes very important to do is first, as a plutocrat, acquire a respectability on social questions that gives you the authority when talking about your own interests to sound like someone who should be listened to. And that takes work. So what does that? Empowering girls in Africa does that, right? Because suddenly the hedge fund manager on the panel in Davos is not a hedge fund manager on a panel in Davos. He is a man who cares about girls in Africa. That's now what you see when you see him because that's what he's been talking about for the last hour. Or, or Michael Dell sitting at Davos is not a guy who's just actually trying to shoot down one of the more interesting new tax proposals in the United States. He's a guy, he's a philanthropist. He's someone who's here to change the world. And as soon as they acquire the moral glow, that's simply the giving, but also just being part of those Davos conversations, those Aspen conversations, that moral glow becomes very useful to them. And I've talked to people in this world about it. They understand that. And it allows them, when they then go to the same senator or congressman who they were hanging out with in, in, Bahama, in the Bahamas or wherever else, and they say, so great to see you at that Empowering Africa Girls thing. Um, hey, I want to talk to you about the carried interest tax loophole. Could you guys go easy on that? It's a much, much easier conversation. But nonetheless, and I'm going to play devil's advocate and take, you know, we, uh, I'm here in my velvet robe, as you can see, and no luxury was spared by Intelligence Squared. Let me just take the other side of this. Something comes out of the other end of it. And as much as you say girls in Africa might have had enough of being empowered by men at Davos or indeed by other well-meaning NGOs, all those who, who sort of profit from it being a bit of a fashionable cause. But actually girls do need to be educated in Africa and actually government's not very good at it. And actually, you do have quite a lot of solutions, technology, and know-how locked up in these companies, which is part of, the, part of the reason they got rich was tax rates, but part of the reason was they're quite smart at what they do. And you know that because you work for McKinsey, right? And you probably had to do a lot of analysis of, of what was going right with companies before you did what you think is going wrong. So the end product, if you say, I, I think this is awful, you're dressing yourself up in it, uh, and you have perhaps ulterior motives is that nothing comes or less comes out of the tap at the other end. What do you say? What I say is that this analysis relies on an accounting system that, ignore, that, that only counts the gestures of do-gooding that they do, and then they come home with those bracelets. Um, <laughs> I mean, you can tell how rich a hedge fund manager is in New York by how many Africa bracelets he has. On the right hand, you got the watch on this hand, the Africa bracelet collection here. Real, like the billionaire hedge fund managers. There's about 30 people eight, sitting on their hands right now. <laughs> it's okay, they're not hedge fund manager bracelets if you're not a hedge fund manager. Um, what I think, you know, just to take one issue that I talk about in the book, there's this whole issue with banks. Standard Charter was involved in a case, you know, enormous Western banks in this country, United States, that wreak havoc on the countries those African girls live in through what they do with sovereign debt, through what they do with commodities trade, to any number of things, right? Sovereign debt's a particularly fascinating issue where it's really zero sum, right? It's really preying on countries that have mismanaged their debt and, and banks profit hugely from it. And so if then some of those same people or same networks of people are on the side of creating an economy that doesn't serve those people, or frankly, tanking their own economy at home, which reduces the amount of foreign aid available for those countries. And then they turn around and they want to save a village. It's noble 
but it's not the full story. And it's very hard to do the math on which is greater. But what a lot of what I'm trying to suggest in this book, whether it's this example or any number of others, is that the plutocrats in our time are fighting on both sides of a war on many, many issues. So yes, their hearts may bleed for why, you know, for, for helping immigrants in this country against the backlash. I'm sure that's a cause many people donate to. Wonderful, wonderful. But I'm not sure there would be the backlash against immigrants in this country if the economy had been working better for 50, 60, 70% of people over the last 30, 40 years. So that shift you all did to the dynamic scheduling system at your company, the decision to outsource, the decision to actually route things through tax havens. Well, we're coming to the point where, the, where you, your list of alternatives is quite, there's quite a lot in there. It's a bit of a magic mix. There's quite a lot. I mean, one of the reasons immigrants come is because your economy is perceived as being productive and, and well-managed. Well, it's better than where they come from. But it could work better for the people who are here, and it doesn't, and it often doesn't because a lot of people want to make extra money. And I spent three years reporting on those people and understanding in great depth how they do it, which they, which they explained to me. I had people sitting there you know, explaining to me on the record all the philanthropic stuff. Can we go off the record now? So here's the tax trusts that I've set up for my children. And I feel very bad about it, but I want to talk to you about it because it helps me to talk to you. Right? Um, I have become the receptacle for the confessions of these people because actually... Many of them understand that they are standing on an indefensible mountain. Well, that's actually what I was uh, about to ask you in terms of personal response, perhaps before we could uh, go a bit deep into some of the arguments and alternatives, is what kind of response did you get? Because it's spectacularly rude and very entertaining, your book, in, in this way, if you like. If you like to see sort of elegant cream pies being flung in the face of the rich and entitled, you, you know, you, you've come to the right author. Um, what then, then happens, and yet I, I see you've got interest from Bill Gates, you've had engagement from a lot of the very people that you seem to be taking a really big kind of poke at. How does that work out? And just tell us a bit about those conversations. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, Bill Gates shocked me by writing a blurb for this book, the, maybe the first person, um, which I was shocked by. And then he shocked me a year later in Davos when he was asked about my book. He has insinuated that I was a communist. Um, so that was a significant shift uh, over, the course, over the course of those four or five months um, or year. Um, look, you know, I think, to be totally honest, in the writing of this book, I walked a line that you, I think you probably think about in your columns and, and other writings where there's a certain level of pungency and ferocity where you may feel it, you may think it, you may have the evidence for it, but you'd lose people. And then there's a certain level of care and caution where you may have everybody listening to you, but you're not saying anything. And you gotta, you gotta walk that line. And I, that's what the editing process is for. There are a couple chapters, entire chapters that didn't make it into here of my own choice because they were, the payoff was meanness more than substantive criticism of how this world works. And I, that wasn't what you I was You see doing. that danger in this kind of argument, indeed in polemic. Full stop. And particularly in a time when people like to be a bit mean. Yes, but here's what I did that I think is different from a lot of polemic out there. This is a polemic in which the microphone in this book is almost 80% of the time in the hands of the people I'm criticizing. It is there. I went. I did what actually is very rare to do, frankly, in the Twitter age, which is when you disagree with someone, go to their house and ask them about it for 10 hours. Okay, so yes, I have strong opinions, and yes, I can be a little, you know, flip on Twitter. But the reality is, I actually practice an ancient profession here, where when you actually disagree with someone, you go listen to them for ten hours, or if they'll give you twenty hours, twenty hours, or if they'll give you three weeks, three weeks. By the way, I had given that Aspen speech that I mentioned to you before I started writing the book, so they all knew where I was coming from, and so the reaction to the book afterward, I think, has reflected the way I went about reporting the book, which is. Sure, there are some people who said this is terrible and I can't engage with this. But actually, I have been shocked and humbled and, and actually wish that I would sometimes be as open as these people. People in this world who have used the book publicly, privately, to me, secondhand, I hear it through rumors and gossip, um, said, I'm going to use this book to look at my life again. Right? I have people emailing me saying they've changed their profession. Now, I don't know if that's real or not, but they say that they've done that. I have 22-year-olds about to take this job offer or that job offer, and they say they changed their mind. So what I tried to do was intervene in a culture. 
and intervene in a set of stories and have people just ask themselves harder questions, which sometimes might lead them in new ways. And how much do you feel that you should be upfront about your own politics? I mean, you're on the progressive eyes in left end of the Democratic Party spectrum at a time of great turmoil in American politics. But some of the things, and we've heard a few of them already along on the way tonight, make certain assumptions that come from that position. So if you look at something like what's the role of the state, would you say, along with someone like Rutger Bregman, who has argued, I think in a slightly different way to you, but you're in the same territory of, of criticizing the elites, that the big missing question is tax. I mean, are you a high taxer? Because I think we need to know a bit more about what your alternatives are to, before we can be sure that we want to throw out the baby with the bathwater, get rid of the philanthropists, and maybe find that maybe Bill Gates was right. What do we take from your own politics? The simple answer is yes. I mean, I, I think on taxes specifically, but, but, but we have to understand when it comes to taxes or any of these other issues that the people calling for high taxes are not high taxers. Okay, They are people merely restoring normalcy after a 40-year war on government that happened in this country and happened in the United States and happened elsewhere. Okay, So when you are simply trying to undo an enormous ideological mistake, it is easy for the people who are living and dwelling and enjoying the mistake, believe in the mistake, to cast those ideas as radical. So you mean that a period of high taxation after the Second World War when societies have been reconstructed after the terrific shock material and otherwise lasted, is the it, it norm. But that's seventies in that the, long in, a period, really. It lasted in the late 70s in the United States. And, and the reality is the U.S. didn't have an income tax until early in the 20th century. So we don't, you know, we don't have as much history as you guys do. Um, but the reality is the 1%, if you look at all the American indicators, everything was in a certain way until 1979, 1980. And suddenly... All the graphs change. Right? And it was the Reagan era, it was the Thatcher era over here. It was government is the problem. There's no such thing as society, only men and women. It's, it's also Democrats in the United States who end up kind of playing in Ronald Reagan's stadium, even if on the other side of the field, you know, Bill Clinton, the era of big government is over. Barack Obama creates the first, his first new office in the White House, the Office of Social Innovation, which declares on its website, top-down programs from Washington don't work anymore. Kind of remarkable that. A but that's because there's quite a lot of evidence that they weren't working as well as they but, but should have worked for, for many people in the population. Sure. What I'm suggesting is a theory was put forward and it was attempted for the last 30, 40 years. And that theory was government is bad, regulation is bad, taxes are bad, business people are the best people. People who actually work in the public good are sort of leeches. Um, and the nice thing about this idea is we tried it. We've actually tried it for a long time. And I think to be honest about any era, you have to understand the trade-offs. I think it's been a great era for building businesses. I don't think any of us would say there haven't been enough great companies formed in our time. It's been a pretty great era for globalization, for world trade, for technological innovation. Innovation is just the Latin word for new shit. And, and there's been plenty of new shit in our time. Uh, but progress is different from innovation. It actually means most people's lives getting better. And I think this, the era of extraordinary fertility and innovation has failed to be an era of, of progress for most people. And so the question then becomes, what are the systems and policies that allow so much profit, so much growth, so much technology, so much innovation to result in so little advancement in so many people's lives, so little mobility, et cetera. And I think the answer is this theory that essentially eviscerated the very idea of the common good. And what I am talking about is easily caricatured as, you know, I don't want the airlines to be run by the government. I don't want my phone to be made by the government. I don't want this water to be made by the government. I am just talking about the three or four or five or six biggest shared problems we have. Problems like how do you empower... So hang on, you don't, you don't trust the government to make these quite basic things, but you trust government to do really big problems. And, and they do not a be great a bit job of a the time. category shift. Give me an example. The NHS. Do you understand what life would be like in this country without it? Well, I, I don't think anyone... Anybody anyone who wish they didn't have the NHS? Raise your hand. Does anyone here in the... Oh, you can, so this uh, got, we question. have 300 people in the room. Does anybody wish they didn't have the NHS? So I would say that's a pretty good success. 
Yeah, your, your, your target group. Your target group is in the room. Um, but if, if people want to reform, if the, I know, I'm going to challenge you on the argument, which is that the reforming state institutions with a great history and a great function in their societies is the tricky bit. It's, I think it's the easy question is to say, do you like the this or the that? Did you find it worked always well for you, for your aunt last week, for your elderly mother? For when you, these are the harder questions, but, but and that's on. where we come but, to but, who but is going to drive the I am an advocate for taxing rich people more, so whatever problems you might have had with that NHS may have more funding behind them. And I understand that not every problem with the NHS is a funding problem. And one of the arguments I make in the book and right in the final chapter is that we, it, this is not just about transferring more responsibility to government on our bigger shared problems. It's also about making government more worthy of that transfer and making government more effective. But part of that is we have created a culture that tells young people that if you want to make a difference, go make an app. Go start a latte company. Go start a cupcake company that gives five pence to people you know, for every cupcake you buy. And we have massively diverted a generation of young people, you know, it, it, I don't but know. Who, I don't who's know if the, the we are. here? I mean, here is an interesting and an engaged. Let me just, let me just the big, the big Why do people go along with it? When that's... In, in, in my country, 50% of graduates of the top universities in the last 30 some years have gone to consulting and finance, right? That's not business. That's two incredibly small micro niches within the business world, okay? So when you say, why doesn't the NHS work as well as it could? First of all, that group of people in the plutocracy have chosen very hard to fight for a set of tax policies and austerity that have favored them and hurt things like the NHS, first of all. Second of all, many of the best and brightest people, because of the cultural component of this, and this book is in many ways a book about culture, have participated in a culture that plutocrats spread and have an interest in, but you're right. We all breathe in and, and propagate that devalues the commons and venerates what is done privately. And that's a big problem. And, and to the question of why we all participate, I mean, I, I always say, you know, every time I come to Europe, and Britain's probably a little bit in between on this, but, but even here, I just don't hear Mark Zuckerberg talked about, I mean, now it's kind of changed for him even in America, but up to two years ago, Right, Mark Zuckerberg in America was like a guy who was going to change the world. And you had some whiners, but basically, right? <laughs> and I would come to Europe, and it's like people in Europe didn't hate Mark Zuckerberg, but no one saw him that way. I think people, in my experience, saw him the way they saw, like, the guy who made those chairs. He's, you know, he's fine. He makes his business with tax, and he's fine. He's a guy trying to make money on chairs. But isn't that a sign that, that the retreat of... Exactly what you described, that people did see through it, or indeed more than saw through it, to the extent to which you could say progressive elites had too much faith in the tech companies and the Zuckerbergs and the, those who serve around the Sun King, and have kind of gone off it. I mean, if anything, they probably feel, we, a lot of us feel kind of wised up. Yes. So we do seem to, I, I, I to go on that journey ourselves. This 30, 40 year era we've been talking about is coming to a crashing end. And I think it's going to be a long and bitter end. I, the hopeful side of me thinks that Brexit and Trump and things like that are symptoms. I mean, they're enormous symptoms that can feel like diseases outright. But I actually do think they're symptoms. I think they're symptoms of what happens when you take big, powerful countries and take the risk of allowing 60 or 70% of people in them to feel like those countries are run for somebody other than them. And then they start roaming around trying to figure out who they're run for. And that's when they get crazy in their analysis in many cases and start blaming things on Mexican rapists. But... <laughs> But the first step of that intuition, which is that my society has a lot going on that's positive, but somehow my kid's education is not getting better. My health care is not getting better. The ability for me to reinvent myself after a job loss hasn't improved. That feeling that people have, that first feeling, is very, is very valid and is incredibly dangerous when this many people feel it. And what has upheld it to the point of the Mark Zuckerberg thing is that so many of us, and this is incredibly important, have participated in this culture. So it's not, I mean, you know, plutocrats alone are a very small number of people. What allows this culture to be powerful um, is that we all participate, sort of, in the idea that the Silicon Valley people are changing the world, or that the people in the city of London who may have helped cause the financial crisis 
are also doing something, something, something on Red Nose Day. Um, you know, or, or, or that, or that ExxonMobil, despite having helped cause climate change, now is apparently a renewable company, according to an advertisement I recently saw. Um, and it's actually us who allows this to go on by, by believing in these stories that aren't true. And in many ways, I wrote the book to slay some of these phony stories. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of Buddhist Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see. No hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-the-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. I think that's a very good point to, to go to the audience. I'm just going to ask you one question to bring us perhaps just back to the question of philanthropy at the, at the heart of this and the, the revolt against the, the rich and the revolt against the rich giving away their money. Just nail for us, if you could, what you think the problem is with philanthropists and the way that it works in the wider world. And this is not just about whether they annoy you, right, at Davos or at Apple. It's about really what is the impact that you think that they might be having. Because if, the, if you're, you're a utilitarian a bit, I think, in some of your, the way that you calculate things, and if in the end they are still doing some good, regardless of the fact you might disagree with how they got their money and, and the system that they're working within. Why would it, for instance, be better for Bill Gates's malaria project not to be so well-funded if it is a well-regarded project on curbing malaria, one of the world's great evils? Just leave us on that thought. First of all, uh, I in no way have ever suggested the world would be better off if Bill Gates didn't fund malaria. In poor countries. One of the arguments I make is that the case for philanthropy is strongest in places where public capacity is less. And you couldn't say the way you might be able to say in this country that the government would be able to do this if it had the proper resources and capability. So I'm not against any of that. The, the issue I raise, I, I do believe, and this may be a surprising argument, you know, the, 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 often the pushback I get is, what could be wrong with trying to do good? You know, isn't it better than buying a yacht? And the general answer to that is, yes, it's better than buying a yacht, sort of obviously. However, I actually do think there's a minority of cases, and I don't think Bill Gates is one of them, I think there's a minority of cases where the world actually would have been better off if certain rich people bought a yacht, right? And I'll explain. So Zuckerberg's actually a very good example, where he's made, I don't know how much he's spent so far, but he's spent a modest amount so far and he's going to spend a lot more. But I would argue, that given that British democracy itself and American democracy itself were compromised by his sort of amazing immunity from scrutiny, right? Parliament now, the Congress now, is only now, after all these years, starting to poke in to these folks. I mean, your former deputy prime minister works for him. Um, the f to my mind, if you subtracted a lot of the moral and philanthropic glow that Zuckerberg 
had over the last 10 years from being a philanthropist, a world changer, an empower of people. If you subtracted that, my guess is British parliamentary inquiries, American congressional inquiries, journalists and others would have been up that guy much faster, sooner and harder. And then you say, if that scrutiny had come five years earlier, what would be the effect on the world? Maybe we would have had an uncompromised election. Would that have been worth more than the money he's given away? I think actually maybe, yeah. So it's very hard to do the math. I think there's folks who created the opioid crisis, right? With the Sackler family, a lot, of, a lot of museums in London have moved away from that money. I think it's a reasonable question that museums are asking themselves. Maybe if we hadn't taken some of this money in the past, which is a tough, they're not taking the money for the future. Maybe if we hadn't taken it in the past, maybe we wouldn't have allowed a certain... But you can't, kind you of can't see into the future. You don't know and as much as you may think you know who you don't like, but you cannot really predict who is going to fall foul. You might be able to do it on a model like Facebook. It's much harder, isn't it, in areas of capitalism where you kind of can't absolutely see the balance of the good and ill is Precisely. very questionable over and, time. And this is why I actually don't believe the system of trying to figure out whether a billionaire has been naughty or nice and therefore whether they give money away is a good system. That's why I think the system is a system that should actually tax a lot more of their money on the way up, regulate things so workers actually have some stability in their lives and a decent paycheck. And they, you will have, if you do that, fewer billionaires and we're all going to be okay. We will survive, actually. And then you'll still have some billionaires, the way they do in Norway and Sweden. And we're going to have loads of questions, so I'm going to take in groups of twos and threes, I think. Fab. Um, so that's actually right off the back of what you just said. I am part of the rich, not the Davos rich, but definitely 1%, and it's unearned inherited wealth. I don't have the billions to expose the trillions that are out there, but I want to put my money where my mouth is, or my, where my Twitter likes are. So what do I do? Because I know the problems are systemic. I know philanthropy isn't the answer, but I'm not willing to just sit here, not help any cause, but at the same time, I want to put the money where it's going to go further. Well, you're definitely buying the drinks afterwards. <laughs> uh, <so laughs> Anand is going to give you a more intelligent answer in a second. Philanthropy starts at the pub. Philanthropy definitely starts at the pub. I, I think we're all agreed on that. Let's take a, a second question over there. Thank you. Hi, uh, I used to work for a Silicon Valley tech billionaire that um, used to run his events in Davos, which did include African girls. Um, and that tech billionaire now owns Time magazine, who you work for. Do you find that at all compromising or challenging to your narrative? What are the odds, huh? Right. Okay, there you go. Two, <laughs> two questions. I don't know exactly how much you're going to have left over after you buy us drinks tonight, but um, I have two answers to that. If you're actually in a position to be making philanthropic donations um, and maybe having influence on others who are also doing that circles, I think you can start to ask yourself, what are causes that are kind of indifferent to the system? That I help some people, I neither help break down the system nor help sustain it. What are causes that, you know, I think as I would characterize lean in where, where I'm helping maybe some people, but I'm kind of really propping up this kind of corporate multinational feminist particular thing. And then what are actually ca causes where I'm donating to that actually are breaking down a bad system, right? And so I think my tax justice example is, is just one example. Um, but I think there are many ways. So, so for example, one thing I hear a lot in this country, is people feel the political class is too closed, right? They wish a wider array of people represented them, okay? Well, you don't just get to that overnight, right? So organizations that would train young people in Britain, we, we've had this in the U.S. just in the last five years, I don't know if you have a lot of it here already, also, that just train the kind of people who are never going to run for office to run for office, connect them to ad makers, viral video makers, you know? That's a very, I mean, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was really recruited by people who saw talent in her, gave her skills, networked. She's incredibly raw talented, but it takes more than being incredibly raw talented, right? That's the kind of thing where you're making a donation to an organization. But what that organization is doing is trying to make this entire system that governs this entire country work better at a systemic level by having, let's say, 10 times more people run for parliament. <coughs> 10 times more types of people run for parliament 
than who's running right now. Right? That's an example, and you could think through what those are. The second thing is just socially, within your world, to be a voice of a different kind. You know, that Nick Hanauer is a very rich guy, a billionaire, who started writing about, you know, some years ago, about how America's rigged for him. And that's not good. And he's made a big splash because people want to listen to him. And he wrote another piece yesterday about how education policy is this kind of mirage because really inequality and low pay makes it impossible for even the best schools to help kids because parents have no time. And it's very powerful when someone speaks against their own interest. One of the most consequential presidents in American history was Franklin Delano Roosevelt, not just because he fought for the poor, but because he was so rich, right? He used four terms in the presidency of the United States, which we've since cleaned up. You can't do that anymore. Um, four terms to essentially batter his own class and build durable institutions, all of which I continue to benefit from however many years later, that protect working people. I'm curious about what FDR-style philanthropy looks like. What does it look like to give as a traitor to your class? Not just to help to stop some bleeding, to help some feed some mouths in front of you, but to help break down the bad system that's causing that. Um, I do over on, here? on Benioff. Um, it's, it's Mark Benioff. Mark Benioff uh, started Salesforce, new owner of Time Magazine. Um, yeah, I mean, it's nuts. And if I went to the Atlantic, it would be Laureen Powell Jobs. Uh, Steve Jobs is, is widow. You know, if I, if I went to, uh, I don't know, what was, it, what was the other one? Washington Post, you got Bezos, you know, and this is a problem. I mean, I don't know if Mark knows this, was watching this debate, but on the day he bought it, this is before I was working there, I'd probably say the same thing now, I am. On the day I bought it, I said, you know, it's nice that he's buying this thing, but it's a regrettable situation that he's going to be the owner of this thing. Now, this is very awkward right now. Um, <laughs> but I, I just feel that. I also feel that I'm But not you see, someone has to own media to have free Correct. media, right? And there are mixed models you can do so, and you can have some trust structures, you can have mixed shareholdings. I would like you to some do... more variety. Right, right now, we're so getting that's to a place in the want. United States where there's basically, in part because the business model is not great, there's just a handful of billionaires owning the media. And, and my concern is not these are bad people. Mark is a very good guy. The issue is, what are the opinions, the thoughts, the lines of inquiry by the way, these owners have very little influence over the papers, at least in the U.S. They, re they actually really don't. I will say, having worked for several, but they really don't. Um, so that's not the issue. The issue is more, what are the broad lines of inquiry or themes that just don't happen when you have a particular group of people that is owning the, the kind of means of, of communication information? Um, and so, yeah, that's something I think about all the time. Thank you. Hello, number one. Hello. Hi. Hi. Um, I wanted to ask your opinion. Uh, obviously, you've written this. This is kind of a, a polemic against the, the idea of the, the globalist and market world. But the two biggest perceived blows that have been landed on globalism and market world recently have been Donald Trump and Brexit. When you actually look at them, you know, Donald Trump funded by Robert Mercer in the room with Stephen Schwartzman just after he's elected Brexit, Bartley Burrs, et cetera. They're both like a bonfire of regulation and tax cuts for the rich. So are you concerned that something worse has actually dressed itself up in the clothes of anti-globalism and jumped in there before uh, we've got anything else that's, that's more positive? That's a great question. You know, I, I described Donald Trump, and, and you can figure out if this applies to some of the Brexit characters um, over here, which I know less well. I described Donald Trump in the book as an exposer, an exploiter, and an embodiment of the kind of cult of elite-led social change I talk about. An exposer, because he was actually very acute, and it's not a phrase I use a lot in describing him, um, he was very acute in understanding the problem of the Clinton Global Foundation, all this, you know, this stuff that I think a lot of people weren't paying attention to at a certain moment. He understood that raising that up, you know, the Clintons were genuinely careless on a lot of that stuff, as they have been for a very long time. And, and possessive the sense that everything they do is right, so therefore they just can't see when they do stuff that's not. Or shady. A lot of shadiness, right? One of the people who works with them for a long time said to me, they're not bad people, they're just shady. Right? Um, and, and he was very good at understanding that 
kind of pumping up their connection to this nefarious world of people trying to make money and pretend they're doing good was a liability, not an asset. And he was, he was early to see that, and, and actually he was right. Exposer. Exploiter. He then took that anger that he was ginning up against plutocrats, and very quickly in the campaign, instead of staying with it, he did a couple gestures. He was against the carried interest loophole, which is a terrible loophole for rich people in America, and some other things. He made bad comments about financial capitalism, which was actually interesting for a Republican. That's not something Republicans do. But he started saying, you have all these problems. These Mexicans coming across the border. They're so, so taking the anger, he then exploited it. He diverted it onto other people who were obviously not the people causing people to have lost their homes in the financial crisis, uh, et cetera. And then he became the embodiment of it. Because having gotten into office, he has literally used the presidency of the United States as a cash machine. He's used it to do more deals, promote his clubs. I mean, he was over here, again, promoting his Irish club in some press conference. Um, and so he has become, in, in many ways, he's not quite what I describe in the book, because he's not even a real philanthropist or do-gooder. Um, but in many ways, he is the, the reductio ad absurdum of what you get when you ask the people with the most solution from change to be in charge of change. When you ask people, when you trust people who've broken things their whole life as to be the best repairmen, when you make arsonists firefighters. Um, and I think we, in a very perverse sense, it gives me no pleasure to say it, we got what we deserve after a generation of telling ourselves that business people were just so smart all the time about everything that if we took an, a particularly not intelligent one, he would still be smarter than anybody else we could get. <laughs> now look. Uh, uh, now look. Just a, a quick word on the Clinton scene as it, it, it came up before we go to, to your next question. Do you feel in any sense that something has been, now that the, that kind of shine has come off, I mean, given that Bill Clinton, when he was president, to an extent also Tony Blair in the, the, this country, but in the, the manner and the style felt a bit of a tribute band, and yet it, it inspired a lot of people. There was a moderate lively, I used the word radical and you responded a little bit earlier, but actually I, I meant it partly in a way that suggests great energy that is attaching to a cause. And that was there around a centrist cause. Now, you would like it a little bit uh, more to the left. Some people would, would want to put it somewhere else. But was anything lost when that kind of dream of a Clintonism or a big center in, in Britain and some other countries has perhaps fallen apart? Do you mourn it in any way? No, I think the reality is that the idea of the center, uh, of being moderate, and therefore in this kind of mathematical imagination, there's just maybe more people there because you can grab more people from the other side. That's a very attractive idea, and the math of it at some level seems obvious. Only the math? Well, the problem with that idea is when you take, let's switch to a cooking metaphor. You know, making a dish as abundant as possible being able to feed, you know, by just pouring water into it does not make it taste better. Um, and I think what has happened, at least in the United States, and I don't know if, if, if folks would agree here, is a lot of policies that could have been simple to understand and exciting on the left were diluted in an effort to get to that center, be more moderate, mm -hmm. address more people who don't like government, maybe win some of them, right? And the Democrats have really tried this for 25 years. So on health care, you had some people calling for universal health care, single-payer health care, Bernie Sanders for a long time, some others. You had Hillary Clinton trying it, then pulling away when there was an outcry. And so where the Democrats ended up was, a way, was, was in that center, and suddenly, this is what it sounds like. I'm just going to mimic what it sounds like. It's like, okay, so we're going to have like a five-part plan. So if you like your insurance, you can keep it. But if you don't like it, then we'll have state-funded block, 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 block grants for Medicaid. And if you earn less than this much, then you'll be on this program. But we'll have a supplementary drug program. And no one is inspired. No one actually understands what it is. And so, yes, you've come to the center, but you've turned it into an ideological Frankenstein of vote attraction that actually is attractive to nobody. Right. We have a question two. So my question regards you. You mentioned uh, Sweden before. And I'm from Sweden, and almost all the problems you mentioned in the book, we don't have, or we've solved. And Congratulations. So, <laughs> so my question is, why is that not brought up more as an example uh, when people say, oh, it doesn't work, or we can never do this? 
It's a great question. And one of the funny, I don't know if this happens here, maybe it's, maybe it doesn't, but one of the funny things that happens in American politics is when people talk about the kind of things I talk about, people are like, even Hillary Clinton said this, right? Well, we're not Scandinavia. <laughs> Who's proud of that? You know, um, it's, it's very interesting. It actually does come up in American politics quite a bit. I mean, I think Sanders and Warren probably talk about that as an example. Um, and look, I think you all, it, one of the reasons it's a little bit of a disanalogy is because, at least the United States, I mean, you're talking about 350 million people. It's just a level of social complexity that is different. Um, you know, I think a big part of the problem, I mean, I understand there's a, there's a growing immigrant population in Sweden and other Scandinavian countries, but America has a racial issue that has made it very, very complicated to do these kinds of programs because a lot of people perceive these programs as white people funding undeserving color people, people of color. Well, that would be certainly true of Sweden, where immigration is... Right, but, uh, but is the numbers well, are just different, right? I mean, well, America, yeah, you're but it about. absolutely drives a challenge to the existing political parties. And there's been evidence in Sweden and elsewhere that as that immigrant population has grown, social trust and, other, and the willingness to kind of anonymously help other people has gone down. So that's a, that's a challenge. Um, but, I, but I do think it's a story that needs to be told more and more, so please, please tell it. Uh, question one, please, over at the left side. Thank you. You haven't mentioned uh, political funding and donations. Does this play a part in sustaining the system which your thesis addresses? Yes, it's a great, it's a great point. And in many ways, you know, I don't know how much, I think you have, you'll do less of it here. We spent two or three billion dollars in political donations per election cycle, which is, you know, our election cycles are basically two years long. It's another thing you do very sensibly here. You do them in like five minutes. Um, but, but. Well, you have rather a lot of them though, don't we? Right. That's, you, yeah, <laughs> yeah you, might, you might have come to the wrong in, time uh, for, yeah, for that duration, remark, yeah. but uh, yeah, we we'll um, make up for infrequency. Yeah. Um, no, it is an enormous part of the story. And it's not specifically the story I tell in the book, in part just because it's a whole other thing. This book, Dark Money by Jane Mayer, is sort of like a companion book to my book. And she really talks about, in this case, really how the political right used philanthropy, but also political donations to completely grab hold of power. Um, and it's a very big part of the story. My book is, in a way, what happens after that, when you now have that power grabbed and social problems multiplying and people making a lot of money because they get special breaks from the Congress. What do they then do with that money to further entrench their power? But you're right. And that's, you know, I, I don't know what my magic wand thing is. People sometimes ask if you could do one thing to fix your country. But that's like a top three candidate, right? I think if you get all money out of American politics, actually the world as a whole would become a better place the next day in a way that's hard to imagine few other changes achieving. But you must acknowledge that that is very... You cannot get money out of politics. I mean, money and politics have gone hand in hand. I mean, well, no other, no other country... Roman, if not before, no, but no other country does it the way we do. No other country has as much money as we do. And so the idea that you can't do it when everybody but, else... Is, uh, no, every country, uh, every democracy I've worked in has had problems with party funding. Sure. Just Americans but, like but to talk about that. But $3 billion dollars is a lot of money. And, 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 and the reality is, it's not just about the donations and I gave to you so you could do something for me. It's actually about time. Most of these members of Congress don't go to their committee hearings because they have to spend three, four, five, six, seven hours a day in their office on a phone calling donors. Most American legislators spend maybe most of their time or certainly much of their time raising money. I don't know if you know that. But if it explains why your friends across the Atlantic are crazy, that's, that may be one reason. Question one. I'm wondering if there are any heroes or budding heroes. Uh, as you look out and you see the people that are operating, I'm not talking about the political world, do you see people that, that are actually there who are going to champion the common good in America? Uh, who are they and how can they be publicized? I would, um, in some ways, at least from an American perspective, challenge the little bit of despair that I heard in your question, which is I actually think this is happening. If you look at the 2018 election, the number of women in the U.S., the midterm elections, the number of women who ran for office, unprecedented. And that is a symptom of something. That, to me, suggests it's not easy to run for office. 
you got to raise the money that we talked about. Um, you put your life on hold. If you have kids, they go through a lot. If you're a woman, you get beat up online in a way that men don't. That's a lot. So thousands of women, more than ever before, decided to run. So why did they decide to run? Not just for gender balance. There was something about this president that we had, this moment, the untruths they saw, the failure of people in those jobs, even on the other side, to do something that made them leave their jobs as teachers or bartenders or whatever it was and get involved. And that wave has continued. I see it everywhere. I mean, I think there is a real civic renewal in the United States. I think this idea that young people go to Silicon Valley when they want to make a difference, I think that is already, that narrative is already turning. I already hear so many, I mean, the number of people I know in the last three or four months who are like superstars who could kind of do anything, who've specifically swerved from some private sector thing to one of the presidential campaigns, often in somewhat low capacities, just to be on a presidential campaign, is amazing. I don't think they would have done that four years ago. Um, so I think the people to me who are heroes are ordinary people trying to take back change, take back their society, and not doing it from the top down, um, but doing it by actually organizing power from the bottom up, building institutions in their community that actually don't just stay in their community, but connect to others and form um, you know, clusters and networks of power. And I see those people everywhere. And I think we need to actually tell their stories more. When you, when you, when you give money away to graduation ceremony to you know, some people, you just get a certain kind of coverage that those kind of people don't get. So uh, as a proof of pudding, because at you, you know, some point your case is going to have to be tested too, do you think that a candidate running from the left of the Democratic Party is going to win the next election in America? I mean, the, the dumbest thing for journalists to do is make predictions. Oh, I don't go on. No, I don't. I just don't do it because well, that's not our job. Um, I, I think the Democratic primary is a lot of people are exhausted by it already because it's 25 people um, or whatever it is, an enormous number of people. We've nearly got that many in the Conservative Party race, but it's, it's much smaller. Exactly. One of the things I think is going to be great about this, I think this is going to be a fantastic primary. I will say that. I'm not going to predict who's going to win or, or whether they could beat Trump. But I think it's going to be a phenomenal primary because, unlike any primary in my lifetime, this is a full intellectual smorgasbord of everything you could ever get from a party on the left. You have some very corporate, you know, sincere believers in, in corporations in the party, people who will probably, when they're out of politics, immediately take a job at Facebook or Google or Goldman Sachs, and that's fine. That's them. Um, you have Bernie Sanders, who calls himself a democratic socialist. You have Elizabeth Warren, who's similar to him in many ways, but calls herself a capitalist in her bones, kind of in that reform tradition. You have a lot of people who are sort of in the middle, or maybe not, we're not quite clear, right? They're not, some newer people, we're not sure where they're going to land on, on these questions. And so we are going to be treated to a real conversation about capitalism and whether it's okay to destroy the world as you make money or whether that should be reformed at the core. We're going to have a conversation about race. We already are. You know, I mean, all these candidates are talking about whether we should pay reparations for slavery. That was the kind of thing you just didn't ask presidential candidates. I know it's an awkward topic here, too. I asked Rory Stewart the other day in an interview, and he was like, no, not for slavery, for colonialism. Um, remember it? So, so there was, there was, there is, this feels, you know, Seinfeld is a show about nothing. This is going to be the primary about everything. And I actually think that's very healthy because you can't say ideas are off the table or the, the corporations are... This is like a real competition of ideas. You said something really interesting earlier when you were talking about Donald Trump, about the clarity, the sort of brutal clarity, even if it didn't sort of mean anything very much in terms of what, what, what sense you could make of it in policy terms that you felt the progressives, if I'm understanding right, had to learn a bit from that. Some people looking at that say, do you know what we really need is we need more kind of starry figures running. And you can probably hear where I'm going with this, which is a kind of Oprah for president trope. So Oprah for president, nightmare or the realization of all of your dreams in one glitzy, cut-through, progressive figure. Oprah would be running because she has made a tremendous amount of money and can self-finance a campaign. That's the whole fantasy on the left, right? That you could have someone rich, unencumbered, 
spend their own money, when. And you might win an election, you might not win an election, but what you would do is you would leave undisturbed some of the fundamental trend lines in American life that have turned America into a casino where the billionaires always win. And it seems to me that if you're trying to stop America from being a place where the billionaires always win, a billionaire, no matter how noble, is not the best foot to put forward. Should anyone be a billionaire? I think we should just have a moratorium on billionaires for a while and see if we're better off. And we can go back if we all decide we've somehow accidentally impoverished ourselves. Look, the reality is, I don't think there's a policy that could guarantee... I mean, I guess there is, but that would be probably pretty extreme. But I think you, if, if you created... We talked about Sweden. I mean, the guy stands up. And yeah, he pays higher taxes in Sweden if you live there and various other things. But he just stood in front of this entire room and says his country basically does not have most of the social problems that I've been describing tonight. That's pretty good. And from what I understand, it's a slightly tougher place to become a billionaire and keep your billions. But that's the bargain they've made. I think if we taxed wealth appropriately, taxed inheritances appropriately, gave everybody a more robust education so they can actually make their own way to a greater extent in the new world we've, we've built, um, gave people health care so that a flu is not losing five years of your life to a, death, a debt spiral, um, and on and on and on. I think we would end up with a society that works way better for most people. I think the goal is not to make sure there's no billionaires. I think if you actually had competition policy that prevented monopoly and wealth taxes and all those things, I think as an incidental byproduct, the ability to make you know, $150 billion would be greatly reduced. And I have a feeling, I'm willing to be wrong and we can try, I have a feeling most people wouldn't be worse off. Last question. I'm going to take you back up that mountain to Davos we spoke about in the beginning, and you've got all the elites. Look at these elites in front of you. Look at how well-heeled they are looking, and they've all got their checkbooks open. In fact, this lady over here started already, and you can get them. I know you didn't want to choose one thing earlier, so I'm, I'm not going to say you have to choose one thing, but you can't do an entire lecture. Uh, you, these elites saying, look, we hear what you say. Uh, we think we have had a lot of power given to us, probably too much wealth, And we want to, in that awful phrase, give back, but we don't want to do it in a, in a way that would, you know, just won't get us anywhere. So give them a couple of pointers. What should our elites here in our pretend Davos gathering here in London do tonight? What should they do with their wealth? Give in the spirit of FDR. Give in a way that actually puts your own privilege at risk. Give in ways that increase the odds that the bad system that allowed you to make your money will be broken down through your giving. Give in a way that actually makes it harder for anybody to ever again make as disproportionate, to use a word Mackenzie Bezos used about her fortune, to make a disproportionate fortune. You know, she talked about, I have a disproportionate amount of money. Well, that's true. But I would hope that when she and others give, she's giving in ways that make it harder to make a disproportionate, which is the correct word, fortune next time. Uh, this is not a mystery. What, what, what a lot of people in, at the very, very top of the mountain have tried to convince us is that this is hard, this is unknowable, we have no idea. But the reality is the basic rudiments of a decent, dignified life for most people are not a crazy mystery. We know what achieves it. There's enough countries and enough variety to know they do this and they get that outcome. They do a bunch of those things and they get that outcome. You guys are similar to us, but you have the NHS and you get way different outcomes on that score. And to just learn from each other a little bit and not do crazy things that are rash, but actually build the kinds of systems that allow people to live with dignity. And if you are at the very top, I think what I would urge you to do, whether you're willing to do that or not, is to increase the odds that we change this system and we reform this system and not increase the odds that we, that we delay doing so. Anand Girardas, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. What are you doing right now? Perhaps you're in the supermarket. Maybe you're on a run 
or on the commute. But wherever you are in the world, and whatever you're doing, right now you're also listening to my voice. This is the power of podcasts. The ability to communicate with your audience in an intimate and intentional way through audio. I'm B. Duncan, Senior Partnerships Producer at Intelligence Squared. We've been a world-leading forum for talks, debates and events for over two decades. And we also use our cutting-edge curation, creativity and editorial expertise to elevate your brand to new audiences with podcasting. Intrigued? To find out what we can do for your organisation, book into a free consultation with me today. Find out more by going to www.intelligencesquared.com forward slash partnerships.